Locked Out by Charles Dickens. Household Words, Volume Eight, Whole Number One Hundred and Ninety Four, Pages Three Hundred and Forty Five to Three Hundred and Forty Eight. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Locked Out Preston, situated upon the banks of the Ribble, some fifteen miles from the mouth of that river, is a good, honest, work-a-day looking town, built upon a magnificent site, surrounded by beautiful country, and for a manufacturing town, wears a very handsome and creditable face. Preston concentrates within itself all the factories of the district, so that with one or two insignificant exceptions, it may be said that there are no factories within many miles of Preston, not within the town itself. This seems an unimportant fact at first, but it exercises a powerful influence over the state of the labour market. The feeling of isolation is so strong in the town that people from a short distance are spoken of as foreigners. As we glide into the station yard, our first exclamation is, What a dirty place! Well, it is a dirty place, that station yard of Preston, and it doesn't do justice to the town. How Her Majesty contrives to eat her luncheon within its precincts when she passes through from her highland home, we cannot imagine. The only pleasant sight within its boundaries is the fresh face and golden ringlets of the little news vendor known to every traveller in this part of the kingdom, whose loyal practice it is, upon the occasion of Queen Victoria's passages through the town, to present Her Majesty with copies of the morning papers on a silver salver. We pass out of the station, astonished to perceive that the atmosphere, instead of being thick and smoky, is as clear here as the air upon Hampstead Heath. An intelligent Prestonian explains that now there are fifty tall chimneys cold and smokeless, and that ought to make a difference. Forty-one firms have locked out their hands, and twenty-one thousand workpeople are obliged to be at play. Preston in full work is, we learn, different from many other manufacturing towns. It is surrounded by agriculture, a smoky island in the middle of an expansive cornfield. The consequence is that it enjoys a great supply of labour, and has less competition than at other places. By this time we find ourselves on a level plain of marshy ground, upon the banks of the Ribble, and below the town of Preston. This is called the Marsh, and it is at once the Agora and the Academe of the place. Here, if report speaks truly, to the industrial Chloe's of Preston, listen to the amorous pleadings of their swains. Here modern Arachnes, far excelling Minerva in their spinning, whatever may be said of their wisdom, cast skilful webs about the hearts of their devoted admirers. Here too do the mob orators appear in times of trouble and contention, to excite with their highly spiced eloquence the thoughtless crowd, over whom they exercise such pernicious sway. When we arrive the place is covered with an immense multitude of children at play. Children, indeed, the extreme youth of the majority is remarkable. Mere lads in barragon jackets, and lasses considerably under twenty, pattering about in their neat little clogs, a distinguishing mark of the factory lass, 
form an overpowering proportion of the operative population. At least two-thirds of the hands employed upon a factory are under age. The parents either stay at home or mind the house, while their sons and daughters are working, or perhaps the mother takes in washing, whilst the father follows some handicraft trade out of doors. To marry a widow with five or six grown-up daughters, instead of being regarded as a misfortune, is here looked upon as a slice of good luck. Whilst on the better side of the picture, it is no uncommon thing to ask a young girl what her father is doing, and to receive for reply, Oh, he just stops at home, there's five of us to keep and atween us. This strange revolution in the natural order of things has been effected by the mighty power of steam. It has its bright side, but it also has its dark side. When you enter one of these vast workshops, you see a world of complex machinery, alive and busy, every wheel illustrating the dominion of the human intellect. Yet it is a mournful subject of reflection, but it is nevertheless an undoubted fact that nine-tenths of the human beings tending and controlling the wondrous creature are so ignorant they cannot read and write, while more than one-half are destitute of either accomplishment. Indeed, it is no uncommon thing to find an overlooker, a man in authority, and exercising proportionate influence over his fellow workmen, who can neither read a newspaper nor sign his own name. The Sunday schools teach some of them to read, but writing is not looked upon as a Christian accomplishment, and the uncore righteous set their faces against writing on a Sunday. To appreciate the fearful significance of this fact, we must recollect the preponderating influence necessarily possessed by those who can read and write, and when we come to reflect upon the way in which authority works upon an uncultivated mind, we shall not wonder at the testimony of one of the clearest-headed masters in Preston, when he says that he has invariably found that the cleverest workman, that is to say, clever in every respect, his work, his reading, and his writing, is always the greatest agitator. Comparative ability and shrewdness on the one side, ignorance, youth, and ambition on the other. What must not be the inevitable result? Play is going on upon the marsh with a vengeance. Kiss in the ring is being briskly carried on. The sterner sort of lads are engaged in leapfrog or football. There are few symptoms of care and contention here. For all we can see, the lads and lasses might have turned out for an hour's recreation, only to return with a sharpened appetite for labour. On one part of the marsh, an old punt has stranded, and its deck forms a convenient rostrum for the hypethral or open-air orators of Preston. A meeting is about to take place, over which John Gruntle is to preside, and at which Cowler, Swindon and O'Brigger are expected to address the people. Presently, a small knot of persons get upon the deck of the punt. The crowd thickens round them. Kiss in the ring is suspended. The football is at rest. A few reporters make their appearance upon the punt, notebooks in hand. Gruntle is voted into the chair, and one of those meetings which thirty years ago would have been a criminal offence is formally opened. Gruntle is not very prolix. He is an old stager and used to these things. In a few words he states the object of the meeting, and announces to the audience that their friend Cowler will address them. 
at this name a shout rends the air cowler is evidently the chosen of the people rightly or wrongly they hold him in great regard his appearance is very much in his favour for he wears the look of a straightforward honest man a smile plays round his mouth as he steps forward with the air of a man sure of his audience but the feverish and anxious expression of the eyes tells of sleepless nights and of constant agitation respected friends he begins and in a trice he is plunged into the middle of the question he has been accused he says of fostering agitation and gaining advantage from the strike why how can they say that when his constant cry has been for the masters to open their mills and give the operatives their just rights let them only do that and he'll soon show them how glad he'll be to give over agitating it's not such very pleasant work either his agitating for example he himself hasn't been to bed for these two nights last night they got the money that their good friends in the neighbouring towns had sent them so he sat up to take care of it for fear someone should come and borrow it from them laughter the editor of the london thunderer had been abusing him well here was a thing twenty years ago such a thing was never thought of as that a working man should be noticed by a london paper but the editor had not been very courteous he had called him a fool because he said that it was a shame for the wives of the cotton lords to wear silks and satins while the factory lasses were forced to be contented with plain cotton was he a fool for that no no great excitement among the lasses and exclamations of eh lord to cowler succeeds swindle a lean and hungry cassius the very example of an agitator a man who has lived by literary garbage without fattening upon the unwholesome stuff he seems half tipsy his eyes roll and his gesticulations are vehement one more glass of whisky and he would be prepared to head an insurrection he rants and raves for a quarter of an hour and we are pleased to observe that his audience are too sensible to care much about him then comes o'brigger oily-tongued and with a brogue he complains that it has been charged against them that he is an irishman so he is faith and he's mighty proud of it the manufacturers are all of em tyrants however this time they will learn that the people of england are not to be oppressed for they will get such a flogging as they never had in the course of their lives he's happy to inform his kind friends that their funds are upon the increase entirely as the pockets of the masters become more and more empty so will the pockets of the operatives grow fuller and fuller thus o'brigger continues to pour into the ears of these poor people the delusive strains of hope and leads them to believe that in the dire struggle between capital and hunger the latter will prove victorious and as he proceeds each fallacious picture is welcomed with an exclamation of won't that be nice when o'brigger has concluded it is the turn of a crowd of the delegates to have their say there is the delegate from this town and the delegate from that factory all marvellous stories about the tyranny of the masters the woes of the operatives and the determination of each particular district to stand by preston to the last they all end by fiercely denouncing the manufacturers whom they term the miserable shoddyocracy a term derived from shoddy 
the refuse of cotton stuff and craqueo to govern being in fact the result of uniting the pindaric and tim bobbin dialects we walk sadly from the marsh and reach a locked up and smokeless factory at the gates of which a knot of young girls are singing and offering for sale some of the ten per cent songs taking their name from the origin of the strike in eighteen hundred and forty seven when trade was very bad the masters told their workpeople that they could no longer afford to pay them the wages they had been paying and that they must take off ten per cent upon the understanding as the workpeople allege that when times got better they would give them the ten per cent back again whether such a promise was or was not actually given we cannot presume to determine for the masters emphatically deny it but it is quite certain that at the beginning of the present year the stockport operatives combined successfully to force the ten per cent from their masters and the preston operatives aided them with funds they acted upon napoleon's principle of combining forces upon single points in succession and so reducing the enemy in detail then it was that the preston masters fearing that similar tactics would be turned against themselves combined to oppose the attempt and eventually locked out their operatives the songs are not remarkable for much elegance and polish but they possess some earnestness and fire and are undoubtedly composed by the operatives themselves we step forward tender a penny to one of the singers and receive the following song composed by an operative at bamba bridge ten per cent a new song on the preston strike come all you men of freedom wherever you may be i pray you give attention and listen unto me it's of this strike in preston town their courage being good i do believe they will stand firm whilst they have life and blood chorus so now my boys don't daunted be but stand out to the fray we ne'er shall yield nor quit the field until we've won the day in eighteen forty seven my boys i'm sorry for to say they took from us the ten per cent without so much delay and now we want it back again our masters in a pout said they would not grant it us so we're every one locked out chorus so now etc there's blackburn and there's stockport too as i have heard them say are ready to support us now and cheer us on our way so all unite into one band and never do consent to go into your mills again without the ten per cent chorus so now etc in preston town i do believe the masters are our foes but some of them before it's long will wear some ragged clothes but we'll unite both one and all and never will lament when this great war is ceased about the ten per cent chorus so now etc though winter it is coming on it will be very cold but we'll stand out for our demand like warriors so bold but if the masters don't give way and firmly give consent we'll stand out till their mills do fall all for the ten per cent chorus so now etc now to conclude and make an end of this my simple song i hope the masters will give in and that before it's long before the masters tyranny shall rule our rights and laws we'll have another strike me boys if ever we have cause chorus so now etc 
These ballads vary constantly to meet the exigencies of passing events. A disgraceful riot at Blackburn, in which some inoffensive persons were attacked for cotton spinners, is celebrated by the Prestonian operatives in the following epic strain. The Preston manufacturers to Blackburn they did go, to the Black Bull in Darwin Street, their tyranny to show. The gallant troops of Blackburn full soon did find it out. They sent broken bones to Preston, and the rest run up the spout. Hurrah, me boys, hurrah! I'd have them be aware, or the cotton lords of Preston will be drove into a snare. The tyrants of proud Preston have returned home with shame, beat out by bold Blackburn, who have won the laurel's fame. To subdue the foes of Preston, their minds are firmly bent, to throw off the yoke of bondage, and restore the ten per cent. Hurrah, my boys, etc. Tertius wakened not more enthusiasm in the breast of his auditors than these simple doggerels do among the rude but earnest crowds which throng to hearken to them. In one of the committee rooms the work of distributing the funds volunteered by the operatives of the neighbouring towns towards the support of their brethren is going on. These funds are collected by six committees and are distributed for the relief of a little more than 14,000 of the hands. Since the commencement of the strike, upwards of £24,000 have been contributed by the poor for the support of the poor. Each committee relieves its own hands. The Powerloom Weavers Committee cares for the interests of the weavers, the winders, the warpers, the twisters, the dressers, the helpers and the reachers. The Spinners and Self-Actors Committee sees to the spinners, the minders, the piecers and the bobbiners. The card-room hands have their committee, and the throstle-spinners, the tape-machine sizers, and the power-loom overlookers theirs. Each collects and distributes its funds, without in any way interfering with the others. The proceedings in the room we peep into are quiet, orderly, and business-like. Again we sally out into the dingy streets, and find that the evening is closing in over them. More knots of lads and lasses, idling about the corners more bands of singers solitary famine-stricken faces too plead mutely for bread and even worse expedients are evidently resorted to for the purpose of keeping body and soul together in preston as elsewhere the facilities for crime are too abundant and we repeat to ourselves those lines of coleridge oh i could weep to think that there should be cold-bosomed lewd ones who endure to place foul offerings on the shrine of misery, and force from famine the caress of love. Ignorance of the most deplorable kind is at the root of all this sort of strife and demoralising misery. Every employer of labour should write up over his mill door that brains in the operative's head is money in the master's pocket. End of the Lockout by Charles Dickens